Morning, church. Good to see everybody here. Great to hear your singing. Our passage today is Luke 18. Turn with me there in your copy of the scripture. We're in a sermon series titled Religion versus Jesus. I'd like us to consider today how prayer is viewed differently, prayer, how prayer is viewed differently for followers of Jesus than for those who are religious. So how do we view prayer? Here's how you might juxtapose the different outlooks. For the religious, prayer requires wrestling something from God, wrestling what we want. And our main purpose in prayer is to control outcomes. So if we think we'd be heard uh, by multiplying our words, more words is better, then we may be on the religious end of the spectrum in trying to control outcomes, or a certain type of word, the these and the thous, um, a formality in our prayer. If there's a particular formality in our prayer, we may be towards the religious end. We think that we're going to motivate God through the sheer overwhelming him with words or, or providing a certain amount or type of word. For followers of Jesus, prayer requires perseverance, but it's a perseverance not aimed at wrestling something from God. It's a perseverance of faith. Faith in God's goodness. And our main purpose in prayer is to be with him. It's a dialogue that involves both speaking and listening. And the transformation of, of ourselves and the participation in particular outcomes. God, God's, the, the outcomes that God wants. There's a powerful story in the Old Testament, the book of 1 Kings, that illustrates these two very different postures in prayer. One aimed at manipulating, controlling outcomes, and the other fueled by a faith in God's goodness. It's the story of Elijah's showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. If you're unfamiliar with the story, Ahab was then king of Israel, and he had introduced at least two foreign deities to the worship uh, among the Israelites. He had brought in Baal and Ashtoreth. Baal was a god of rain, Ashtoreth, Asherah, the god of good fortune. And, and Yahweh, in his desire to humble the Israelites, had withheld both rain and good fortune, ironically, from the Israelites as they worshiped these idols. And in the desire to rewin the devotion of the Israelites, Elijah proposes a showdown. Let's see who, who's really God, is basically the proposal. He invited the 450 prophets of Baal up to Mount Carmel. There he challenged them to a showdown, proposing that they would both build all altars. The prophets of Baal would build an altar, he would build an altar. They'd put sacrifices, wood, and then sacrifices up on the altar. And then they would pray. They would call out to God. Baal, they'd call out to Baal. He'd call out to Yahweh. And the God that answered with fire, consuming the sacrifice on the altar, he'd be shown to be God. This seems 
like a good idea to the prophets of Baal. And uh, they would go first. So they built an altar. They stacked wood on it. They put a sacrifice up on the altar. And they began praying, calling out to the god Baal, asking him to answer with fire from heaven. Send fire from heaven to consume this. Demonstrate your power. And they did this from morning till noon. No answer. The prophets of Baal were powerless in prayer because Baal is powerless. Look what happened next. So they shouted louder and louder. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that Elijah, wisely or unwisely, remember the Old Testament's descriptive uh, in some regards, not always prescriptive. Elijah starts taunting, uh, teasing, talking smack with the prophets of Baal because no, no God is answering. And so he teases them. You need to shout a little louder. Maybe he's asleep or maybe he's out on a walk. So they shouted louder. They slashed themselves with swords and spears. They're spilling their own blood, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. So it's not just the blood of a sacrifice upon the altar that was spilled. The prophets of Baal also spilled their own blood. Ancient idolaters bowed before and prayed to and offered sacrifices to their God in order to move their God to action. In order to uh, fuel their God's response. In return, they thought that their God would be obligated to care for them if they bowed prayed, offered sacrifices. It obligated their God to respond to their desires, their prayers. So in one final attempt to move Baal, to care for them and demonstrate he is God, they start spilling their own blood. The difference with Yahweh, our God, is that he doesn't need our care. He doesn't need our sacrifices. Instead, Yahweh has offered us his care. He shed his own blood and calls us to wholehearted devotion based upon his sacrifice on our behalf, that is Christ. This is a distinct impact on how we pray. If our prayers are meant to move God to action, motivate God, then we're going to be very religious in our prayers, manipulative even. Striking certain poses, well, he hears me if I get down on my knees, or he hears me if I stand. Saying certain words for a certain length of time, at a certain volume. But if, if our prayers are about relationship and joining what God is doing in the world, then it's more of a dialogue. Here's next, it's Elijah's turn. He selects 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, piles them up, brings wood, slaughters a sacrifice, puts it on top. Then interestingly, he digs a trench around the altar. And he has them bring, not once, not twice, but three times, large barrels of water to pour over the fire. Right? He's building some real anticipation here. Because it's hard to light a fire uh, when the wood is soaked. 
Here's what happened. Then he prays. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, burned up the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate, fell face down, cried out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So here's our question, or a question. How do we go about praying? Why do we pray? Why do we believe our prayers will be heard? On what basis? Do we work to control outcomes through prayer? Are we trying to wrestle what we want from God? Or do we believe that God, in his goodness, is eager to hear from us, welcome us before him, and invites us to join in what he's doing through prayer? If the difference between the way Elijah prayed and the prophets of Baal prayed and the outcomes of those prayers weren't enough, Jesus offers us some instruction in Luke 18 on prayer. And it's a parable. Luke 18, I'll read the first eight verses. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Have you given up praying? Do you wonder about the effectiveness of prayer? Do you doubt his eagerness to hear from you? Always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge. This judge neither feared God nor cared for what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea. Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, that is, the judge refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? It's a rhetorical question. Yes, God will do this. Will he keep putting them off? No, he won't. I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find us still praying? Believing? For a little context here, this parable comes right on the heels of Jesus teaching the disciples about his second coming. He had just reminded them of God's judgment upon humanity during Noah's flood, this, his judgment upon the city of Sodom, its destruction. He next segues into prayer, which culminates in the question, will you still be praying when I return, or will you give up? You see the link? Judgment's coming, I'll return, I'll bring judgment. It'll be like in the days of Noah, when there was wickedness on the earth. It'll be like in the days of Sodom, great wickedness, and I'm coming back for judgment. Will I find you still praying? Verse 8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This parable is one of my favorites because it's easy relatively. We're told what we're to take away, glean, in the first verse. 
Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Thank you. <laughs> Put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Make them easy to reach. If you're looking for something, if you're looking to live differently in the week ahead, let this verse impact how we live differently in the week ahead. If there's something you've given up on, you've stopped talking to God about, if you're not in the habit of talking to God, start talking to Him. Always pray. Never give up. As disciples, I think it's fairly straightforward. We should be praying. If Jesus prayed, how much more should we be praying? And throughout the New Testament, the Gospels, it's very detailed that Christ was committed to prayer in His life. Anyone can pray, and frankly, most people do pray, both Christians and non-Christians alike. But this parable is about something different. This parable is about persevering prayer, which is a wholly different category than offering a singular request for, for example, peace, help during finals, right? We got college and grad students here. This is about something different than simply the promotion you want at work or to get along with your neighbors. All good things, all things we should be praying about, but it's actually calling us to persevering prayer, to keep on keeping on. Persevering prayer is a decided act of faith. And I left off some words here. Persevering prayer is a decided act of faith in God's goodness. So when the answer doesn't come right away, it's easy to grow discouraged. And to think, well, he's not hearing me, I must have some sin in my life, or he's not eager, or he's disinterested, or he's far off. Persevering prayer is a decided act of faith in God's goodness by which we participate in the kingdom's coming. Have you, um, <clears throat> expectations are key, Right? Uh, a part of leadership, part of shepherding, whether in the church world or, you know, whatever you do. If you're a leader out, out in the marketplace, m cultivating expectations, managing expectations are of the utmost importance. And I fear one of the reasons that we may not pray in a persevering manner is because expectations weren't managed by the church from platforms like this in pulpit ministries. Frankly, I, I'm worried that we thought, well, it's going to, I'll receive Christ, I'll follow after Jesus, and it's going to be smooth sailing. Folks, let me help manage expectations. We're in a battle. We're in a battle. It's tough. Life is hard. Now, I don't, I don't mean to be condescending, but what I mean is, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, our weapons are not of this world. We fight with different weapons, and weapon, the need for weapons, the verbiage of fighting, what's, what's a primary weapon we have? Prayer. And so when we give up on prayer, we give up in the battle. And it ain't going to go well for us. If we lay a primary weapon down and walk around defenseless in the world, it's not going to go well for us. Illusion. 
always leads to disillusionment. If you're disillusioned in your faith, walk it backwards and figure out what illusion did I buy into. If you're prayerless, I wonder if the illusion was, "Eh, it's going to be easy. Rather than, no, this is a primary weapon that I must engage daily, and I'm going to be expected to persevere for years. In this particular parable, the specific aspect of God's kingdom coming that is being sought is justice. The widow says, give me justice. But remember the context of the passage. It comes on the heels of the Pharisees asking, just a little bit earlier, when will the kingdom come? What are the signs of the end of the age? When will God's rule of justice be fully established? When will evil be vanquished and righteousness rules? And Jesus answers them saying that the kingdom is already in their midst. He's the kingdom, present with them. It'll come fully when he returns. So we are people that are waiting for the return of Christ and the execution of ultimate justice and righteousness will come with him along with judgment and we pray in the meantime. Persevering prayer is a primary means by which we experience the king and his kingdom, his reign, his rule in our lives. If we stop praying, if we're not people of prayer, how will we experience his reign and rule? Again, justice is what's in view here, fairness, righteousness that's being sought by the widow. We see a dogged determination on her part. She actually scares the judge into acting. He's not a righteous man, but he's afraid she's going to attack him. She's so vigilant, so persevering. And now I should mention, is persevering prayer all that's needed for justice in the world? No, absolutely not. We also need to demonstrate faith in the king by opening our mouths, telling the truth, standing down systemic evil at times. We battle personal and systemic evil by passing legislation that protects communities, advocating for the weak and the marginalized, by seating juries to hear the the facts surrounding a case in order to pass judgment on wicked behavior. So prayer is not all that's needed. But persevering prayer is a foundational means by which we see the kingdom come in our world. Life circumstances can be difficult. It's easy to grow discouraged. When life is pressing in on us, it's easy to grow impatient. With God's apparent slowness in answering prayer, I've used this before, but let me use it again as a an example, how many of us would enter a house, our house, today after church, we'd enter the house, throw the light switch, and if the light didn't come on, we'd just go about our day living in the darkness. None of us would do that. None of us would live comfortably in the dark in our own home. If the light didn't come on, we would flip it a couple more times. We'd go look at the bulb, shake it. Is that little thing loose in there? I don't know if LEDs even have those little things anymore. If 
a new bulb didn't fix it, we'd go to the fuse box, throw the fuse back and forth, pretend we know what we're doing, right? If that doesn't work, we're going to call somebody. We're not going to live comfortably in the dark. We'd have the same practice when it comes to experiencing the person and the purposes of our Savior in this world. We're to persevere in prayer until we receive an answer. As we pray, we're throwing the light switch, so to speak. I get it. We want an immediate response. We want the light to come on, the answer to come down. If it doesn't, we are not to grow comfortable living in the darkness. We're to seek the king. For far too many Christians, living in the darkness of unanswered prayer is far too comfortable. For far too many Christians, living in the darkness of unanswered prayer is far too comfortable. Many of us are persevering. We persevere in the pursuit of wealth. We persevere in the pursuit of influence in our community. Are we persevering as men and women of prayer? Where are those who will pray not simply once or twice or three times, but for years? Pleading for God's kingdom to come. Who will fight the good fight of prayer? Paul's words, fight the good fight. Who will pray? Who with dogged determination will persevere in prayer and not just for justice, but for revival, the salvation of souls, the healing of nations? Where's our dogged determination to see and experience the goodness of God? Where's our passion for God's attributes to be experienced by our children? Let's not live comfortably in the dark. Let's persist. This parable has characters in it that can easily be understood and even related The widow represents those who are weakest and most needy in society. We have a little picture here for you. It seems to capture the reality of her difficulty. She's alone. She's helpless without any recourse to change her situation or to force the judge to act on her behalf. She's totally reliant upon his mercy towards her and his fairness. She's easy to identify with because we all have issues. In our lives, we feel alone with. We feel helpless on these issues. We feel needy. Issues upon which if God doesn't act, most likely nothing will change. Issues in which we are powerless except to continue in persevering prayer. Which in reality is the greatest power by which we can see real and lasting change in the world. Perhaps you're wrestling, or someone you love is wrestling with chronic illness. Pray. Or maybe someone you love is moving further away from faith in Jesus. Pray. Or maybe you feel overcome by mental health issues. You haven't been able to function because of anxiety or depression or temptation is drowning you. Pray. We all have issues that we're helpless to change to some degree. So someone will ask, I've preached on prayer a lot, 
someone will ask, how do I live content when the prayer has not yet been answered? What does it mean to be both persistent and content in whatever situation God has me? To answer this question, let's look at the judge. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, very self-interested, even though I don't fear God, I don't care what people think yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see she gets justice so that she won't serve me poorly, attack me, eventually come after me. So he's motivated by self-interest. He's arrogant. He's callous. What's Jesus' point? Are we to conclude this is who God is? No, we're to conclude the converse. Even an unjust judge can be motivated through perseverance. How much more our Heavenly Father, who's soft-hearted. So the point of this parable is not that we must persist because God is holding tightly the answers to our prayers and He's unwilling or self-interested. That's not the case at all. In fact, the point of this morning's parable is that he's loving. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? Yes. Who cry out to him day and night? Yes. Will he keep putting them off? No. I'm telling you, they'll get justice and quickly. If you've ever spent time in a courtroom, you know it, the important role a judge plays in the justice process. Judges interpret the law. They help juries apply the law. And if a judge is unrighteous, then their interpretation, their direction to the jury can be very negative, which is evident in this story because the judge holds off in helping the weakest in society because of his self-interest and his callousness. Jesus is contrasting this arrogant, callous judge with God, righteous, caring, eager to hear from us. Jesus is saying, persist in prayer because God is caring and just, a just judge who loves you and has your best interest in heart. When we're tempted to give up, when we're tempted to doubt God's character, based on the authority of his word, I want to encourage you to fight the good fight of persevering prayer because he's righteous. He's not a wicked judge. He's righteous in caring and compassionate. Remember, managing expectations. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said. It's going to be difficult. Don't lay down your greatest weapon, prayer. Now, you may ask, why has God made it this way? Why is this the economy, the spiritual economy in which we all live and move? What's to be gained by requiring persevering prayer? Well, Jesus asks a question at the end of the story which gives us the answer to this question. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? You're here this morning because you have faith in Christ or you're investigating faith in Christ. A primary way to demonstrate faith is through persevering prayer. It's God who's at work in us. It's God who's at work in the world. He's doing a beautiful work of restoration. At the same time, we are not passive observers in what God is doing in the world. 
We're active participants in the work of redemption in the world. Our kids' lives, our spouse, our parents, our community, our neighbors, we are active participants in God's work of redemption in the world. We're citizens of the kingdom. We're deployed people. We're sent out with the good news of the gospel. We're to stand up for the truth, confront lies. And we take our place in all that through prayer, through dialogue with our Creator, the one who's doing the work of restoration. We discover His heart, His purposes, and we partner with Him as we pray. By persevering prayer, we will see the kingdom come. Here's the crux of the issue. Jesus teaches in this parable that prayer directs the very course of history. Prayer directs the very course of history. And Jesus is calling us to continue in prayer even when life is difficult, even when it takes years to receive an answer, because God uses our prayers. This is a means for exercising our faith, praying. It's not the only means, it's a primary means. In God's sovereign design, he's ordained persevering prayers of his people as a means to meeting his purpose. It's a beautiful reality, really, who are we that we'd be invited in to the redemptive work here on earth? Invited to participate in the unfolding course of history. Elijah prayed for the demonstration of God's power to fall from the heavens, and fire did. It consumed the, the wood, the sacrifice, the stones, the water in the trench, the soil. Powerful response by God. If you read on in 1 Kings, soon after, he's praying not once, he's praying again, that rain would now come. Now that Baal, the god of rain, has been defeated, and you can imagine why an agrarian culture would be tempted to worship a god who says he's in charge of rain. He, he bows once, twice, three times. He perseveres in prayer for rain to come because Yahweh is the provider of all those needs. I would suppose that there are probably hundreds of biblically appropriate areas in which we are not to give up in prayer. In fact, as you make your way through Scripture, you get a sense that no concern is too petty to have a dialogue with God about. Nothing's off limits. Doesn't mean we get everything we ask for. Certainly not when we ask for it. But remember, we're not going to God to manipulate, coerce, or control outcomes. We're going to be in relationship with our Creator who's good and righteous and loving and, and find our place in and participate in His redemptive work in the world. So we're going with a wholly different purpose. So I made just a little laundry list, and I'll throw it up on the screen, of things that are prayed for. This just the New Testament, and, and it's not exhaustive. Physical healing. Deliverance from evil, the establishment of churches, the well-being of our enemies, our adversaries, our daily needs. Give us today our daily bread. Forgiveness 
of sin, the ability to escape temptation, justice, vindication, faithfulness, unity, deliverance from persecution, good health, success, strength by the Holy Spirit, spiritual understanding, wisdom in how to act, love towards others, discernment in difficult situations, peace and relief from anxiety, opportunities to share the gospel, diligence in sharing the gospel, the salvation of non-believers, signs and wonders to confirm the gospel. Prayer for leaders and those in authority. I can be content in whatever circumstance I'm in, even when it's dark, the light didn't come on, because I know the one I'm in dialogue with. I know that he's good and righteous and caring. Although I don't want to stay in the dark, it means that I'm okay wherever God has me in the moment. It means that I can be fully confident God's with me and that in the right timing, he'll give the right answer. It means that I can both seek first his kingdom while persevering and rest in the knowledge that he's working for my good to make something beautiful out of whatever prayer request I'm bringing him. So let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you that you've invited us to participate in the unfolding events of history. Participate in your work of redemption in the world. We confess our relative prayerlessness, our discouragement, our doubt, our failure to persevere. Father, would you help manage expectations? Would you help us understand reality, in other words? What's really going on? And why prayer is essential and persevering prayer is needed. Help us see the war that we're in and the weapon we've been given in prayer. And help us wield that weapon unflinchingly. Father, those things that we've stopped praying about, give us the courage to act on your goodness and continue to pray. Those things we're afraid to bring to you because we want to control outcomes and are afraid of what you might say. Let us persevere. Let us come draw near to you. Father, we do pray for signs and wonders that you would confirm your word through answered prayer. Help us hear and see, hear what you're doing, you're saying, see what you're doing, and pray in accordance with your will for our own good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing two more songs, as always. Folks are down front. They'd love to pray with you. Gary Larson and Amy Coyle, come on down at this time if you want prayer. Let's stand together.